Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. You, might have, you may remember this name from this passage from Acts chapter 18. Uh, he was um, uh, beaten up. To the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also this, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. No church is perfect. Uh, where did we hear this before? Just this morning, that's right. Um, Jordan mentioned this. Uh, no church is perfect. No church is immune to the ravages of sin in this world. No church is going to excel in all the different areas of the life of the church. And as much as it pains us to admit it, church life can sometimes be very messy and complicated. It's messy and it's complicated because we bring with us our sinfulness. We bring with us our failures and our weaknesses. We bring with us our stories and our lives. And our life in this world is not always smooth sailing. Spurgeon is right when he says that the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners. Or as someone else puts it, the church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, 
but a school for the, for the education of imperfect ones. No church is perfect because it is filled with imperfect people. Each one of us with our own flaws are the only perfect church meets in glory before the throne of God and the Lamb in heaven. And this brings us tonight to the church at Corinth, a church that the Apostle Paul planted some 2,000 years ago. A church that was full of contention, ranging from issues such as division over their favorite teachers to issues of incest and sexual immorality and the proper administration of the Lord's Supper. In this series of sermons, uh, we are going to focus on the different issues that the Apostle Paul addresses in his letter to the church at Corinth. So we're not going to be looking at every single chapter, but we're, looking, we're going to focus in on all these issues that comes up, all these church problems that, are, that arose in the church at Corinth, at Corinth. So we're going to be looking at sexual immorality. We're going to be looking at lawsuits against other Christians. We're going, to, we're going to be looking at questions regarding marriage and singleness. Uh, we're going to be looking at questions such as food sacrifice to idols and issues of head coverings in worship and the use of spiritual gifts in those famous chapters from 12 to 14. And then we'll close off with uh, chapter 15, looking at the significance of the resurrection of Christ for the world. And tonight, we will look at how Paul addresses the issue of division uh, within the church at Corinth, uh, over, the, over their church leaders. I've got four points for us tonight. Uh, the first one is really uh, looking at those first nine verses. Uh, Paul there, I think, is, is wanting to remind the church, the people, the believers at Corinth, of who they are in Christ. Uh, they have a new identity. Uh, the second thing that I think Paul does is then to correct them. So he begins by encouraging them. But then the second thing, he doesn't ignore the problem. He... he addresses it, he, he corrects it. But then he, the first thing he does is he, he doesn't only say to them, this is wrong. He, he tries to explain to them a better understanding of who those church leaders were, and then he closes off with the gospel. So he encourages them, he corrects them, he teaches them, and then he points them back to the gospel. So four things for us tonight. The first point, a flawed church, a fractured church, um, but a true church. So Paul, in those first nine verses, is going to try to, to encourage them. And it would be easy uh, to look at all that's happening at the church at Corinth and conclude, how can they possibly call themselves Christians? How could they possibly qualify as a church? Isn't it? We, we look for this chapter in just about every chapter of 1 Corinthians. I know you've read the book before. Just about in every chapter, there's a problem that sort of comes up. It would be easy for us to look at that and, and say, well, how do, how do they qualify? Well, uh, Paul is going to start by, t by telling them, by encouraging them, by telling them, well, you are a church. So this is where Paul starts. He starts by reminding the Christians living in Corinth of who they are. Uh, they are a church. He doesn't begin with a rebuke. In fact, as I will mention later, and as we will see throughout the letter, Paul's approach throughout the letter is caring and, and pastoral, he wants to encourage them and he wants to win them over. He doesn't begin uh, by accusing them or pointing the finger at them. It's not that he's going to ignore their sins, he's going to address them one after the other. He, he will address them, but this is not where he starts. He starts by pressing upon them who they now are 
He wants them to realize how the gospel has changed their lives, uh, that they are not what they used to be anymore. So in verses 2 to 9, Paul is going to use different words and different expressions to remind them of this new identity that they have in Christ. So in verse 2, in spite of their failures, in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their sins, Paul reminds them that they are the church of God. That's how he begins to the church of God. That is in Corinth. Uh, it's not the church of Paul, notice. It's not the church of Apollos. It's not the church of Peter or Cephas. It's the church of God that, means, that meets in Corinth. Just like we are the church of God that meets at Donville. And it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Corinth. As someone said, Corinth was the New York City, the Las Vegas, and the Los Angeles of the ancient world, all blended together. So you're thinking of, of ancient time Corinth. It's this mixture of New York and Las Vegas and Los Angeles. It was a wealthy city, an attractive city uh, for business and trade. It was ideally located between two major harbors that connected Italy to Asia. It was the place to be for anyone who was somebody in the ancient time. It attracted people from multiple backgrounds and cultures and walks of life. It was a melting pot of ethnicities, of religions, of philosophies. Corinth was the home of the Isthmian Games. If you've never heard of this, uh, it's second only to the Olympic Games. Uh, it attracted all the celebrity athletes of the time. It had a notorious reputation for being the, the center of sexual immorality. It was the sin city of the first century. Think of Amsterdam or think of Bangkok. A city filled with temple prostitutes and temples dedicated to different gods. So this was the background. This was the culture from which the believers at Corinth came out of. There's a church there. And the church is planted right there in this culture of immorality and indulgence and wealth and trade and money all blended together. And Paul says to them in verse 2, you don't belong to this world anymore. You are now the church. And he uses the word ecclesia in the Greek, uh, which literally means the called out ones. It's the same word that the Old Testament uses to describe the people of God as those being called out from among the nations. So Paul imports this word from the Old Testament, brings it up in the New Testament, and says to them, you are the ecclesia of God, you are the church of God. So when Paul uses this word ecclesia, the church, he's reminding them that they have been called out, called out of this pagan, immoral, worldly, carnal, and secular Corinth. They are now the church of God in Corinth. They belong to God. They are His people, His treasure, His children. In other words, what Paul is saying uh, in this, uh, to them in this is, be who you are. You are a Christian. You are a church. Act like one. This is where he begins. And again in verse 2, Paul says to them uh, that they have been sanctified, uh, which means that they've been made holy in Christ Jesus, not because they themselves are holy or they themselves are without sin, but because in faith, by faith in Christ, they have been credited with Christ's righteousness. So in the eyes of God, they are holy. So in verses 2 to 9, make this point over and over again. They are no more what they used to be. They have been changed. 
they belong to God. And Paul reminds them in verse 2 that they have been called to be saints. And God has set them apart from the world to be his people. So in spite of the errors, in spite of their sins, Paul does not question their identity in Christ. He knows that they have been saved. And he, we read about this in Acts 18. God said to Paul that he has many people in Corinth that are his people. Paul was their pastor. He saw them come to faith. He saw the grace of God at work in their lives. And he thanks God for it in verse 4. And he lets them know that he is thankful to God. And that we might have been quick to judge them, but not Paul. He thanks God for them. He says, Lord, thank you for those believers in Corinth. Yes, they're not perfect. Yes, they are flawed. Yes, it's a fractured church. But look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful. And all the time in those verses, Paul is doing one thing and one thing only. He's reminding them of who they are. They are the church of God. They are holy. They have been called out from the world around them. They've received grace and peace from God. And Paul says to them in verses 5 to 6 that this has been confirming them by all the spiritual gifts that they have received. Gifts of speech and knowledge. And Paul says to them that they lack nothing. They are a true church, fractured, flawed, with lots of problems, broken, but a true church. They lack nothing. And Paul says to them in verse 8 that he is confident that God will sustain them till the end when Jesus returns. Now I've had to add those two points because of um, things that were said this morning in the morning services. So here are my two points. So Paul says to them in verse 8 that he is confident of this, that God will sustain them till the end when Jesus returns. And there's two things that I want to say about when Jesus is returning. Number one, no one knows when Christ returns. No one knows when Christ will return except the Father. The Bible says that it, is, uh, that it will be unexpected. Uh, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. It will be completely unexpected. The second thing that we learn from the Scriptures is that Christ's return is not dependent or held hostage by the conversion of any particular people group. So Jesus is not waiting, uh, held hostage. Jesus is not saying, I can't come back. Oh, oops, you're not converted yet. No, Jesus will return at the appointed time that the Father has appointed for him to return. But that was just a side note. But I don't want you to miss out what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's not telling them what they should not be doing. He will get there. But that's not where he starts. He is reminding them, reminding them of who they are to convince them of how they should live. He's reminding them of all that God has done for them and in them. He's reminding them that they have been saved, they have been changed, they now sanctified, they've been made holy. So this is how they ought to live. And all the words, all the words in those first nine verses that he uses has this implied implication to it. So in the word ecclesia, God is saying, Paul uses this word, and God is saying, you've been called out of this pagan world to follow Christ. And then God, Paul says later, you've been enriched with all these spiritual gifts. The implication is, use them for the glory of God. Don't abuse them. And we'll get to there when we get to chapters 12 to 14. Uh, I want to try to illustrate what Paul is doing in those first nine verses. Why is it that he begins this way? What, what is he trying to achieve? Let me try to, to illustrate this for us. 
when I was younger and, and somehow done something wrong at school, my parents would sit me down and what they would sometimes do, they, they would remind me of my responsibilities. Uh, not, telling me what, uh, not telling me what they were or where I've gone wrong, they would simply sit me down and remind me of what I was given. So they would say to me something like this. So I've done something wrong at school. So they'd sit me down and they'd say, do you know the name of the school that you go to? Rhetorical question, yeah. They would say, do you, do you know why we send you to that school? I'd be thinking about it. And he would say, they would say, do you remember how glad we all were that you were able to get in? And then they would say, do, do you remember how we, we prayed and thank God that the school is so close to where we live? And then they would say, do, do you realize all the opportunities that you have going to that school? Now, they've, they're not addressing at all what I've done wrong. They simply, all they're doing is reminding me of what I was given, of the responsibilities and the, the privileges that I, I was given. Now, my younger brother and my younger sister didn't have that chance. So my, my parents, all they did was just to sit me down and just, just sort of gently remind me of, of the privileges of all that I was given. And this is what Paul is doing here in those verses. He's reminding them of who they are. So instead of saying, don't be like the world around you, he's saying, you have been called out of the world. Live as a child of God. Instead of saying, do not sin, he's saying, you have been set apart to be holy. So be holy. Michael Horton, who is a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary in California, says this, we are holy, therefore we ought to be holy. In other words, God has made us to be holy. So let us walk in holiness. This is where Paul begins. He begins by reminding them that they have been changed and called to, be, to, call to a different life, a life of obedience to God. The believers living in Corinth should not continue to follow the principles or priorities of the world around them. They are to live for Christ, follow Christ, and obey Christ. Paul reminds them of all that they have been given in Christ so that they would not lust after the things that the world falsely promises to them. They have been called out of Corinth, and they should not let Corinth back into their life. Let me read this again. They have been called out of Corinth, and they should not let Corinth back into their life. Uh, J.K. Chesterton once said, we do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And so Paul begins by reminding them of the new life to which they have been called. They have been called to this new life, this fellowship with God and His Son and His people. So when you come in direct collision with the world around you, and you have to make an important decision, a crucial decision, about how to respond or what to do next, remember who you are in Christ. When your friend invites you to a party and you realize that it's not the best environment for a Christian, remember who you are. When your employer is trying to get you to do something that is unethical, remember who you are. And when the culture, the society, and the people around you 
try to squeeze you into following their secular and ungodly ways, remember again who you are. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been purchased with a price. Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you. He went to that cross for you and I to rescue us from eternal death, from eternal damnation. So when you are faced with all these challenges of life, all these difficulties, remember who you are. You've been called to be holy. This is where Paul begins. A flawed church, but a true church. He doesn't begin by judging them. He, he, he wants to encourage them, reminding them of who they are. The second thing he does, uh, he corrects them. So it's a blessed church, but it's a divided church. So there's no cover-ups here. Paul doesn't pretend it's not there. He addresses it. So verses 10 to 17, the church at Cor Corinth was a, a gifted church. It was a blessed church in every way, in many ways, lacking nothing. Paul says this to us in verse 7, and he will have more to say about this later in the book. Uh, but the church was fractured from within and was becoming so serious that we are told in verse 11 that some people went to find Paul to report it to him. They went all the way to find Paul and reported it to him. And they were divided among themselves regarding who they thought their favorite teacher was. Isn't that interesting? Some say that they followed Paul. Some people think possibly because he was the one who planted the church at Corinth. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, I'm following Paul, he planted the church. And some say they followed Apollos, he, who was a, a powerful preacher, a, a skilled teacher from Alexandria. And the people living in Corinth, they, they valued wisdom, they valued Greek philosophy, and they, they were interested to hear great speakers and orators. So it's, no, it's not hard to see why some people preferred Apollos instead of Paul. So we'll follow Apollos. What a great preacher. And some said that they followed Peter or Cephas in your translation, possibly because he was known to have been with Jesus from the beginning and a leader among the twelve, the original twelve. And some people said that they followed Christ, uh, which could be a good thing, unless, of course, it was done in a self-righteous and superior kind of way. Oh, you can follow Paul, you can follow Apollos, you can follow whoever you want. We're following Jesus in a self-righteous kind of way. But the point is, they were divided, separated into groups based on personality or preaching skills or even baptism as we continue to read. I was baptized by Paul. How fantastic is this? I was baptized by the senior minister. In other words, they were no different from the society around them who segregated people based on wealth and education and social class and position. And Paul lovingly and pastorally appeals to them as brothers. He says to them, brothers, he calls them brothers. He says to them in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the midst of their shortcomings and their sins and division, he says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, I'm reading from verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. So that's the first thing he says to them. He's going to say three things. That all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. That's the second thing he says but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that's the third thing. So he says three things to them in light of the division. He says the first thing he says is, uh, agree. Uh, he appeals to them 
to be in agreement with each other. Now the verb, this verb that Paul uses there in the Greek, uh, literally means that they would come to a common understanding, that they would work it out by speaking to each other. That's, that's literally what the words means. It basically means speak the same thing. In other words, these, Paul is saying to them, talk it through, resolve the issue, speak to one another, sort it out. That's basically what Paul is saying when he says to them, agree with one another, talk it through. And he is going to provide for them resources in chapters 1 to 4 for them to think about and, and discuss. Uh, we're not there yet. The second thing that he's going to say to them is, do not allow this to become something that would tear the church apart. So agree, but then the second thing, do not allow this to become a schism from within the church. Actually, the word he uses, uh, let there be no schism, no division, no falling away. He doesn't want the church to split up because of this infighting over who the best teacher or leader was. Talk it through. Don't split up. And thirdly, he pleads with them to be united. The word again used here is a word used uh, in the fishing world to speak about the mending of nets. So Paul is asking them uh, to repair their relationship just like they would repair a broken net. He wants them to become one church, knitted together, knitted to one another, uh, with the same mind and thought. In other words, that they would be united in their thinking. So three things, talk it through, be in agreement, don't divide, don't split up, repair the relationship, come to a common understanding. And again, he doesn't command them. He doesn't say, you better do this. He appeals to them as a brother in the faith. Though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, though he says himself in verse 1 that he has been called to be an apostle by the will of God. He has every authority to do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't command them. He appeals to them. His approach towards them is not heavy-handed, but pastoral. In fact, uh, please look with me at what he says to them in chapter 4 and verse 15. You've got your Bibles there with you. Uh, please turn with me if you can to chapter 4 and verse 15. This is how Paul saw his relationship to them. He says to them there, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul loved the church that met in Corinth in spite of the challenges, in spite of the problems that they were facing as a church, in spite of their imperfections. Paul loved them. He saw himself as a father to them. The question is, what are some of the things that have the potential to divide us as a congregation. Maybe it's the subtle way in which we speak about our favorite writers. Who do you read? And some say Piper. Others say it's Keller. And others say it's John MacArthur. And all the while we're thinking within us, oh no, you should be reading us, it's proud. Or maybe it's through the, the different groups in which we, we fall into. Naturally, I think, we have a large congregation. And we are part of different groups. And in those groups, we have our friends. And sometimes we sit next to them at church. And we have our, our, our support network, our, our, our prayer friends. And without realizing it, maybe, just maybe, 
we're making other people feel left out. Who knows? Maybe it's the subtle way in which we speak about the different preachers of our own congregation, but you wouldn't do that, of course. Uh, of course not. Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us tonight of the importance of Christian, Christian unity within the church. Christ is not divided. So his people should not be divided as well. Uh, Jesus, uh, we know, prayed for the unity of his people. We can read about this in John chapter 17. He prayed that we would be one, that we as his people would be one, just like he and his father are one. So when Paul sees disunity in the church at Philippi, which is another book, uh, between two women uh, named Euodia and Syntyche, he asked the church to, to sort it out, to help them reconcile. He, he makes it a church project. He sees division at Philippi and he makes it a church project. He says to the church there, help them reconcile. When Paul sees division in the church of Rome between the weak and the strong in faith, well, he asks to those who are strong in faith to bear with the failures of those who are weak. He asks them not to quarrel with the weak, but to welcome the weak again. He encourages them towards unity. I remember uh, the, the 80s and the 90s, I was a lot younger then, but I remember those years. And I remember watching all these shows on TV, and just about everyone would come and talk about world peace. Now, if it was a, a, a modeling show, one of those Miss Universe pageantry, just about everyone. Miss Venezuela would come up and say, and they would have a question, so what are you hoping would happen? World peace. And then Miss Sri Lanka would come up. The same thing, world peace. Anyone who's hoping for world peace, but when we look around us today, what we see is the world that is more and more divided. Well, the scriptures tell us it's only in the gospel that we can truly be united. In the gospel, God brings people together from all nations, all backgrounds, all languages, all classes, all ways of life. You can go and visit a country, like a church in Morocco, find Christians there, and have things in common to talk about. Now, some of us will have experienced this. Only in the gospel can we find true unity. So let us, as a congregation, strive to preserve and maintain the unity that we share and be thankful to God for it. Richard Baxter, it's, he's a 17th century theologian and pastor, and he said this, he that is not a son of peace is not a son of God. So let me say this again. He who is not a son of peace or a daughter of peace is not a son or a daughter of God. All other sins destroy the church eventually. The division and separation demolish the church directly. And this quote uh, reminded me that we are called by Christ to be peacemakers, to live in unity and harmony with one another. Uh, we should always remain in our church a non-negotiable, always. So what is, what is Paul doing? Uh, he, he's, he receives this report. There's uh, factions in the church, there's division, the church is fractured, people are, are running after different teachers. He knows this. Uh, there is incest, there is sexual immorality, there is Christians suing other Christians, there's confusion about marriage and singleness, there's questions about head coverings in the church, there's issues about the, the resurrection of the body. There's all these things. And the first thing he does is to encourage them. So that's the first thing he starts. That's where he starts. He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. They've been changed. They've been called out of Corinth. They're different people. 
So live differently, be holy. The second thing that he does in those beginning of the chapters, he addresses the first item, division within the church. He says, don't go running after the different teachers. Uh, you have to strive for unity. Agree. Don't let this divide the church. Come together. Repair the relationship. But the third thing he does, I think, is in chapter 3. I'm about to ask you to turn there with, with me. Is that he doesn't just encourage them and tell them where they've gone wrong. But he, 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 he gives them a better understanding of how they ought to think of those teachers. So very often we, we correct someone, but then we don't tell them well, what is it they ought to think instead. This is what Paul does in chapter 3. He comes back again to this issue of division in the church. So the issue of division in the church does not end in chapter 1. In fact, it, it goes on and Paul addresses it again in chapter 3. So let me read the beginning of chapter 3 uh, to us. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So Paul says, I can't talk to you as spiritual people because what I'm observing is only telling me that you are infants in the, in the faith, in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even, uh, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. Uh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So Paul says to them, all that I'm seeing, all this division that I'm seeing, all of this, all, all that this is telling me is that it's giving me this sign that you, of spiritual immaturity. And what he does next is to explain to them how they ought to think about those teachers instead. So he says to them in verse 5, what is Apollos? Why, why do you follow after him? What is Paul? Why are you following after me? Servants through whom you believed. So what are they? They're servants. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what is Paul doing? He begins by reminding them of who they are. He then calls them to be united, but he also addresses their misunderstanding, their lack or their lack of understanding. He teaches them. He doesn't simply say, be reconciled, be united. He explains to them why and where they went wrong. He explains to them that Apollos and Paul and Peter and whoever else might come to serve the church are exactly that. They are servants of God. And God has assigned different tasks to each one of his servants. One plants, one waters. Uh, it's not that God's servants are unimportant. They have a God-given role to play. Uh, they are to be faithful, but growth, genuine growth, comes from God. They, they are only the servants of God. The point is, they needed to understand where Apollos and Paul and Peter and whoever comes next fit in what God has been doing. For them to grow in maturity of faith, they had to grow in their understanding of God and His Word. And the same is true for us. For us to grow in maturity of faith, we need to grow in our understanding of the Bible. It's not enough for someone to come to us and say, don't do that. They don't need to tell us what is it that they expect us to do. And Duane spoke about it this morning in his children's talk. We want to grow in our faith, we're going to read our Bibles, understanding it better. And the Bible is the place to go. God gave us His Word to correct us, to, to rebuke us, to teach us, to train us in the things of God. 
So Paul encourages them. Uh, he points out what the error is, but then he also teaches them. He says to them, well, there is a better way of thinking about those teachers. They are God's servants. And finally, that's the last point for tonight. Um, Paul points them back to the cross. So here's the church. It's a church built on the, gospel, on, on the message of the cross. So I'm back in chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 17. So Paul says to us in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In this verse, Paul says to the church at Corinth that his mission is to preach the gospel. This is why he has been sent by God. This is why he has been traveling from city to city in the, in the morning at the moment we're preaching through 1 Thessalonians. At night, we're in 1 Corinthians. But this is how Paul saw his mission. He was there to preach the word. But not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Do you see his concern? Preach, yes. But not with eloquent wisdom. Not words of eloquent wisdom. His concern that the cross of Christ might be emptied. He repeats this in chapter 2 and verse 1. Again, if you've got your Bibles there with you, then chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul again, he says this again, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you see His priority again? So He encourages them. He corrects them, he teaches them, but he wants them to understand where his priority is all along. Christ and him crucified, the cross. Do you see what he leaves out? He leaves out anything that would distract anyone from the gospel. He says it again in chapter 2 and verse 4. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He preached not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the power of the Spirit of God. He didn't import, his, he didn't, uh, import within his message those man-made wisdom. Uh, the gospel message doesn't need to be embellished uh, with earthly wisdom. It doesn't mean that you know, we, we try our best to preach the most boring of sermons. But we're not trying to add to God's Word. God's Word is, in, is interesting and captivating and attractive by itself. And it's powerful. It's God speaking to us through it. And Paul, he understands that. So Paul understood the city. And Paul also understood the city in which he was ministering. I'm running out of voice here. <clears throat> and Paul, he, he, he understood the city in which he was ministering. He understood the culture around him. He knew that they idolized human wisdom. He knew that they, they were impressed by those great Greek orators and speakers who spoke with powerful and polished words. He knew that the culture that surrounded the church in Corinth um, treasured those things. And look at what he says in verse 22. He says to them, in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, For Jews... Demand signs. You're preaching to the Jew, well, you better be making a couple of miracles, otherwise they're not listening to you. And Greeks, they seek wisdom. 
But we, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul understood that the message of this crucified Savior is what changed people's hearts. And he would not allow anything to distract him from the message of the gospel. He kept it at the center of everything that he did. He preached this crucified Savior. He understood that in the preaching of the cross of this Savior who has come to die for us, God was breathing life in the hearts and soul of dead and believing Christians. He understood that. And he would not allow the cross of Christ to be robbed of its power. So what does he do? He encourages them, he corrects them, he teaches them, and then he points them to Christ. And to wrap things up, he says to them in verse 29, So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is how he wraps things up. So if, if you're going to be boasting about anything, don't boast in Apollos, don't boast in Paul or Peter. Boast in the Lord. If there is anyone we should be boasting in, it's God, not people. Not even the Apostle Paul, not, not, not Apollos, not Peter. They are servants of God. We should boast in the grace of God in the gospel. We should boast in this crucified Savior who died for you and I. So when a congregation boasts in the Lord and not in themselves, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign that they understand all that they've received in the gospel. May we be such a congregation. Amen. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, we come before you with our flaws and our shortcomings and our weaknesses. We come before you as a congregation of your people. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for our imperfections. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the grace and the kindness and the love and the undeserving mercy that you've shown to us at the cross of Christ. We pray, Father, that, we'd, that we would boast in Jesus and in him crucified. We pray, Father, that we would not be importing within our church services and our things that are of this world. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus and what he's done in us. So continue, Lord, to work in us by your Spirit to make us more like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.